everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alleycast podcast. We're come rain, shine, or anything in between. We're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Connor Baltazor. And today, welcome to the scouting report of the third game of the football season up against the Tulane Green Wave, former wacky segment of the week, champions, Tulane Green Wave, we should mention. That's a distinct honor right there. It's very distinct. That's probably what affected the Vegas line. Oh, Uh, yeah. They they found the episode. (laughs) Yeah. They were like, you know, that's a fair point, honestly, about that mascot being unstoppable. Uh, clearly only a very intelligent person would say something like that. So we've really got to, we've got to like really adjust this line for that, which they yeah. did because it moved by like six points. I say as somebody that doesn't bet, but yeah, you know, if Mike Gundy ender ends up in like a UFC fight, he'll almost certainly just cause the other person to explode with how many, how many wacky segments he's won, but that's neither here nor there Tulane green wave. This will be a the final non-conference matchup for the K-State Wildcats, and it's one that is interesting, to say the least, in many different ways. But before we get ahead of ourselves and go into this year, let's take a look back at the 2021 stats. Connor, you have offense. Yeah, so back in 2021, they did not have a particularly great season. Uh, to put it mildly, they went two and ten, one and seven in conference. Their highlight probably would have been almost beating OU, which was objectively hilarious when it yeah. happened. Although the circumstances surrounding it were quite sad because uh, that was like a game that last second got moved to Norman from New Orleans because of the uh, hurricane, I believe. Yeah. And uh, uh, Tulane ends up nearly coming back and winning that game in the end. But the rest of the season was not as fortuitous. Um Rushing yards offensively, they were just under 2,000 at 1,979, 4.4 per attempt uh, with 19 rushing touchdowns, uh, 2,661 passing yards, uh, 7.08 per attempt, 57% completion, uh, passing touchdowns and interceptions, uh, 23 touchdowns to 13 picks. So not the greatest ratio in the world. Um, and then a uh, third down percentage, they completed just over a third of their third downs at 33.5%. Not very good at all. That's 111th in FBS last season. Red zone scoring was even worse. Uh, touchdowns just 60.8% of the time. And then scoring as a whole was 71.7% of the time. That was 124th in FBS. So really, really bad. Yeah, there are 130 uh, schools. So <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that is really rough. And then uh, they allowed 32 sacks, had 27.58 points per game for a total of 331 points scored on the year. Yeah, so 700, give or take, more rush, more passing yards than rushing yards. You know, the offense wasn't great last year. The defense wasn't a whole lot better. In terms of defensive statistics last year, they were averaging giving up 34 points a game. 408 points total against them with 3,255 passing yards against with 28 touchdowns, 1,901 rushing yards against with 25 rushing touchdowns, a third down conversion percentage of 41.04, which was 80th, which is below average. And then the red zone scoring percentage was not very good either, giving up a touchdown 74.5% of the time and giving up a score 90.1% of the time, which was tied with for 112th with 
the Texas Christian Horned Frogs. So whenever we bring that statistic up in a month or two, you'll remember that we brought it up because they were tied with Tulane. They had 10 interceptions last year, 14 fumbles forced, 34 sacks, and a turnover differential of minus nine. Positive numbers for turnover differential being good. So they lost the turnover battle. And they didn't lose it. They lost it pretty badly. <laughs> yeah, that that is a really rough uh, turnover differential uh, with the 13 interceptions and an indeterminate amount of fumbles lost. Uh, 10 interceptions on defense is uh, that's not bad, um, but they were really hemorrhaging the ball uh, offensively. Um, and then obviously the passing yards against that really sticks out uh, yeah. over 3000 given up. Um, couldn't stop anybody is really what it seems like. They couldn't score very much um, and they couldn't stop people from scoring, which that. Uh, that's the, not a good combination. Yeah. Uh, anybody that can do basic math, uh, that that's a recipe for disaster on the football field. So um, we can move to notable returners and the ads then. Um, they do return a lot on offense. I suppose that's probably the uh, saving grace that Tulane's going to be happy about. Although it's kind of a double-edged sword with that. You bring back a lot of production, but the production wasn't great and you went two and 10. So it, it, it Glass half full, glass half empty. I'll leave that interpretation up to you. But they bring back starting quarterback Michael Pratt, who has been a three-year starter. Uh, they also have uh, Ty J. Spears back at running back. Uh, Tyreek James at tight end. He was their leading receiver. Uh, Shea Wyatt uh, was the leading wide receiver. Um, Making Clark at safety. Uh, tied for first and tackling interception leader. Uh, Dorian Williams was the tied for first tackler with Macon Clark at linebacker. And uh, then Darius Hodges at Jack was the sack leader, which is really interesting. And yeah, he's, he's moved down to more of that true defensive and like stand up rusher. Now that tracks. Um, then, uh, they added uh Prince Pines, uh, an offensive tackle from Sam Houston state, uh, who is now the starting left guard, uh, rather than offensive tackle. Yeah, so they're returning quite a bit of production on both sides of the ball. The thing is, is that it's just not the greatest production overall. And what they're losing is also pretty important. They're losing their second leading sack getter in Jojo Dorcius. He graduated. Same story with Jalen Monroe, who is their leader in passes defense. Jeffrey Johnson, who is arguably their most effective lineman was a transfer to Oklahoma, defensive lineman, I should say. And then they lost their o offensive line coach, Jeep Wade, which is an awesome name, by the way. He left for a job at Appalachia State. And then Gerald Chapman, their defensive line coach, he ended up leaving for Colorado. I'm really not sure if that's much of an upgrade right now, given how Colorado is playing. But <laughs> Yeah, that, that is probably a lateral move at this point because Colorado has been just absolutely awful. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, they do lose quite a bit, uh, there as well. Um, but they do still return quite a bit, although losing some coaches is always going to hurt. Um, but yeah, that's it for returners and, uh, losses. Yeah. And, and now we can go into their 2022 in which they've had two games so far. And I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was against two of the worst teams that I've ever seen. It was up against UMass and Alcorn State. 
UMass is a running team who just who looks like they don't know what the forward pass is. They discovered the shotgun formation before the forward pass. And Alcorn State is an FCS school that just isn't much better. They won those games against UMass 42 to 10. All the scoring by UMass was done in the first half. Trust me, I know. God, it was miserable. Uh, <laughs> Alcorn State was a 52-0 loss. In terms of 2022 stats, Connor has you for their offensive grouping. Yeah, like I said, they're 2-0. Uh, it's a asterisk, though, because, I mean, those two teams are really bad. Um, but statistically, right now they have uh, 355 rush yards, 4.3 yards per attempt, so a little lower uh, than last year. But passing-wise, uh, they're doing pretty well. 572 yards through the air, 10.8 yards per attempt, which is really good. Uh, five uh, t- five touchdowns to zero interceptions uh, with eight rushing touchdowns and a 47.62 third down percentage uh, this year for the offense, a lot higher. Granted, smaller sample size against a not very good team, but still generally better returns there. Yeah. In terms of defense, their defensive third down percentage is 30%. Their points per game is 47 with 94 total points for 10 points against turnover differential of plus one and four total sacks. Um, Let's take a pause there. Four total sacks against UMass and Outcorn State. Presented without comments. (laughs) I was was just going to say, I'm shocked that it's that low after the uh, quality of opponent uh, that they were facing in those games. Uh, I think that says something about their pass rush, maybe. Um, yeah, because it's not like they were getting a lot of pressure. They were getting stonewalled. But yeah. <laughs> Granted, devil's advocate. Like you said, UMass, they don't know what the forward pass is. So it's basically four sacks in one game. True. If you want to be generous. With that being said, they should they should still have more than four sacks against the uh, opponents they're facing true in terms of red zone scoring percentage on defense there's been a total of two red zone possessions for their their wow. opposition they scored on 100 percent of them that's the the upside uh they've scored a touchdown on one of them so it's a 50 percent touchdown rate in terms of red zone scoring on offense they score 80 percent of the time 73 percent of those are touchdowns so statistically even with the context of who they're playing, it, it's it's kind of underwhelming. <laughs> yeah, um, not incredible. Um, I, I have a game going right now in the background as well, and it's just painful to watch. <laughs> but yeah, yeah uh, that, that, that should be better. Uh, all these stats that they have should be better with the exception of their passing touchdown interception rate and their pass yards per attempt, which is pretty good. But... I mean, I would be frustrated if I were a Tulane fan uh, with those numbers. Granted, they win 42-10 and 52-0. How much can you complain about that? But it, it doesn't jump off the page uh, statistically uh, in the way that you would hope it would. Yep. So now we can get into a certain somebody's favorite portion of the, the episode, which is offensive and defensive formation numbers as well as concepts. Again, same caveat as last week. Everything below was charted up to non-garbage time, which both games reached admittedly very quickly. So I, we didn't want to chart anything that was like, okay, well, they're just going to run the ball three times 
over and over and over again with no variation because they've already won the game and they're ahead by three scores. So we actually, all we did was chart the, the actual <laughs> snaps here. But Connor, what do you have for the personnel groupings? Uh, yeah, so they were never in 32. Uh, 22 personnel, they ran 8% of the time, but that was all goal line. Uh, 21, which is 2% of the time. 12 personnel, 20%. Then you get the meat and potatoes. Uh, 11 personnel, 62% of the time. Uh, 10 personnel, only 2% of the time. Empty, 4%. And then they use an extra lineman 2% of the time, which I would imagine was one, maybe two plays. So Yeah. Yeah, and uh, for the numbers there, first number is running back, second number is tight end. So their most popular formation grouping is one back, one tight end, which is pretty standard for college. Yeah, that's, that's pretty far for the course. So, Yeah, but in terms of how everyone lines up, they line up under setter 15.3% of the time, in the shotgun 53.8% of the time, in pistol 26.9% of the time, empty 3.8% of the time, and then wildcat exactly one time. In terms of how the receivers tend to play, I saw trips 9.8% of the time, twins 27.4% of the time, bunch 23.5% of the time, and miscellaneous other 39.2% of the time. So they're not a team that really likes trips formations unless it's out of the bunch. So their goal there is to try and create a difficult situation for people to play man coverage in which makes a whole lot of sense given how they want to run their offense, which I forgot to write it down, but this offense runs a significant amount of RPO, a lot of stuff over the middle of the field, a lot of stuff, you know, just they're not, they're a West coast offense. That's the best way to put it. They're a traditional West coast offense that wants to dink and duck you down the field, which we'll get into it later with quarterback, but they have a really good quarterback for that. So when we're getting ahead of ourselves, you can go ahead and talk about the offensive concepts. Yeah. So running game, uh, they're running at 61% of the time, uh, which is pretty high. I think Uh, counter 5.9% of the time inside zone uh, that takes the lion's share uh, 23.5% of the time. Uh, They're pretty commonly running split there. Jet sweep 9.4%. Uh, percent of the time power 15.6 percent of the time then wide zone 12.5 percent of the time uh one running back sweep no more no less and then (laughs) option 6.25 percent qb sneak 9.4 percent rpo 15.6 and they did also run a reverse uh passing game they run 39 percent of the time uh 44.7 percent play action 12.8 percent uh screen um, and then motioning 58.3% of the time, no motion, 39.1% across 2.6% uh, was short motion. And uh, every time that that happened, it was setting up a counter. So, yeah, it was, it was always a tight end moving back into a bunch to set up a counter, which that's, that's something you can really only put on film like twice because <laughs> otherwise everyone already knows. <laughs> and counters are pretty easy to blow up if you know which way they're countering. But I have you for defensive formation numbers and concepts. First one is the note about alignment. The first thing to note is their safety alignment. 
First things first, I hate the ASPN plus camera angle. I hate it a lot. I really, really do, especially in the UMass game, because there were quite literally plays where I could see exactly seven people on the field on each side. And that's disgusting. <laughs> so I'll admit this is this is probably the numbers that I'm least certain about. But I can say with a pretty good degree of confidence, they're in a two high shell 55% of the time, and then a single high shell about 45% of the time. And in terms of defensive line, they play that three-man hybrid tight front that we're used to seeing, except for that hybrid defender that you normally can see like drop out into coverage. He really is just a stand-up edge rusher. So it really is a more true 4-2-5, except for the end guy on the line of scrimmage doesn't have doesn't have his hand in the dirt. So Connor and I were talking about this earlier. It's kind of similar to how White Hebert played in 2020 to where we were still technically running a 4-2-5, but he was just a stand-up edge rusher. And most of the time, if it's an inbounds formation with an obvious strong side, they line up opposite to the side of the running back, and that's what they mainly run. If they're running anything else, it's going to be a bear look or a wide look. Basically, they have two linebackers on the line of scrimmage to make it a five-man surface. And they use this for more balanced looks or bigger looks with to the formation strengths. But what do you have for coverage, Connor? Yeah, coverages, they're running straight man 68.8% of the time. And then zone, 32.2% of the time. Uh, when they're running zone, they're probably running cover three. Uh, the isolated receiver, they're going to press pretty often. Uh, and then the numbers here are a little strange uh, just because the UMass game, uh, UMass doesn't like throwing the ball because they're UMass. So they, the, the, those numbers are a little skewed. Um, and then also they do blitz 35.8% uh, uh, of the time uh, as well. Um, but yeah, the, the man coverage number pretty high, uh, but the uh, UMass game really messes with that. So, yeah, a lot of time it's, it's cover one man. So there you go for that. So now we can go into the general takeaways from each and every position, starting at the quarterback position with true junior Michael Pratt, who is number seven. Enters the season 29 for 41, a 70.7% completion percentage, 482 yards, five touchdowns, and no picks. Excuse me. <clears throat> Enters with a 76.2 PFF grade, 63.8 passing, 87.4 running. And the first thing to note is he's really bad dealing with pressure. <laughs> Excuse me again. That was like a mini sneeze there. I don't know what that was. But... <clears throat> He's really bad at dealing with pressure and it makes everything about his game become much, much worse, which if it, you're going to pick one trait when mixed with this offensive line, that's actually not a bad one to have because it's not a bad offensive line, but just his accuracy mechanics reads a lot of it goes out the window and he's just not very good at dealing with pressure. And as a deep ball thrower, he's not good. Being blunt, he's bad at it. He's downright very, very bad at it. Every time that I saw him complete a true deep ball in non-garbage time, it was honestly his receiver kind of bailing him out because of the leading receiver that he threw to was also a kick returner. So he has insane ball tracking abilities in order to contort his body to make a really good catch. He's not a good deep ball thrower. He's not as bad as, say, like Brady Cook, because Brady Cook 
can complete maybe one deep pass out of every 15 he tries, but he's not good. His, his best trait, Pratt's best trait, is working in the middle of the field, specifically the intermediate middle of the field. In fact, I think he has a 100% completion percentage within 10 to 20 yards over the middle of the field. I think he's seven for seven on those. But he's a field general. He's he's a game manager. That's the best way. That's the most generous way to describe him. He is a game manager. He's someone who is going to get the sticks moving, get the ball in the hands of playmakers, and hope that they can get a lot of running after the catch done. And his release as a quarterback is not all that fast. He kind of ducks his arm over and under a little bit. It's not Tim Tebow or, God forbid, Colin Klein. Well, actually, Tim Tebow is worse. But it's not It's not as bad as either of those. But it it's still not particularly lightning quick. And finally, the last thing to note is mobility isn't really a strong suit. He's, he's fast enough to where if you completely forget he's there, he's not like a statue. He's not Carson Strong, but he's not someone you're really scared of, especially coming off of containing Brady Cook pretty well last week. And the main thing that he lacks is not necessarily speed, but twitch. He's not going to make you miss, but he can get out the pocket and he can get two or three yards on a scramble if he needs to. Yeah, uh, his running abilities, it's pretty meh. Uh, it, it doesn't frighten me, I guess is the best way to put it. He's not helpless, but he, uh, yeah, like I, I think you put it best. The lateral movement is uh, lacking. I guess we'll put it, but um, yeah, good eval on Pratt. Um, we can move into running backs. Uh, we've got two guys uh, that we'll probably be seeing: Tajay Spears, uh, number twenty-two, and Iverson Celestine, number eight. Uh, Spears is the main guy. Seventeen carries for sixty-five yards, three touchdowns, two receptions for thirty-two yards as well. Right now, he's graded with a 70 PFF grade, 84.7% uh, in the passing game, 68.3 in the run game. Uh, that passing statistics probably a little skewed because he has two catches. But Yeah, probably a little bit. Yeah, uh, He's the running back one. Um, uh, he's pretty solid. Uh, his vision is solid as well. Uh, he's good at uh, getting through uh, the trash, good at uh, getting through uh, crowded areas. Uh, he, he's good at directing himself and getting where he needs to go. Uh, he's, uh, again, solid receiver. Uh, his pad level stays a little high, doesn't get the hip sync that you would like to see in cuts, but he's a solid uh, running back. Uh, not not a slouch, not a pushover. Uh, you know, he, he, he can hold his own uh, in the backfield. Uh, Celestine, he's got 17 carries, 89 yards, no touchdowns, 43.3 PFF. Uh, 53.4 in the passing game, 43.5 in the running game. He is one of the running backs of all time. Yeah, the, this one's interesting because on the depth chart, he's listed as the second running back. But there's another one who's just as unremarkable, who I saw get slightly more snaps. But it doesn't really matter because Ty J Spears is their running game. <laughs> so yeah. do with that info what you will. <laughs> Yeah, but next up is their receiving room, led by three people in particular. That's number 10, Shea Wyatt, number four, Jaquan Jackson, and number 14 in the candidate for the all-name team, D.D. McDougal. Starting off with Shea Wyatt, 
He enters the contest six for 150 and a single touchdown, a 75.3 PFF grade and a 77.7 pass grade. Trep Sevens there. If he was in Vegas, he'd be a lucky man. But he's the leaning returner in terms of receiving yards. And the main thing that he gets, and you'll notice this as a theme for all of these receivers, is that his primary marker is his speed and his ability to make plays in the open field. In an offense that wants to operate mostly over the middle, he's the type of outside receiver that you want. I'm not saying that he's as nutty as, say, for an NFL comp like Debo Samuel or Brian Edwards, because those are just two middle field merchants who kill people. (laughs) But Shea Wyatt is a good rack threat with okay hands and an ability to separate at a moderate level. But this kind of extends to Jaquan Jackson, who honestly, although he's not the leading receiver, he's probably my favorite of them. He comes in five for 95 with one touchdown with an 84.2 PFF grade, 80.7 in passing. He also serves as their kick returner, and he's actually a pretty good one. He's actually a pretty good kick returner and probably their best deep threat, which on an offense that is based on speed, that's saying a little bit. And those two skill sets, the returning skill set and their deep and his ability to be the deep threat, have the exact same reason. He has an uncanny ability to track a ball. Like he will make basket catches if you don't make a play on the ball. Playing him is not the move. You have to play the ball against him. And if the ball is on target, he can make some pretty freaky adjustments as well. Like he's, I believe it was up against, I think, I think I'm thinking of UMass where he contorted his body in such a weird way that he it was almost like the Willie Mays catch. If you know what I'm talking about, where like he just kind of stuck his hands out, contorted his entire body to where it like basically it looked like a C. So that way he could catch the ball over his shoulder. It was insane to watch, but yeah, Jaquan Jackson's probably their best deep threat. And then DD McDougal, he answers five for 70. I don't really have much to say about him. He has a 74.5 PFF grade, 67.8 passing, 78.2 running. There's a bit of rotation here. Number two, Deuce Watts. He has suspect hands, but he's fine. And then number six, Lawrence Keys, the third, is consistent and pretty good with the ball in his hands. But outside of that, he's the pretty standard slot receiver. So a collection of athletes at receiver more than anything else. I've talked a lot. You can take tight ends and offensive line. All right. Uh, tight end, the name to know is Tyrick James, uh, number 80. Two catches for 51 yards so far, 74 PFF grade. Almost all of that comes from uh, his high-level uh, passing game grade is 77.2. Uh, run blocking is at a 62.1, um, which is interesting because uh, in tight ends, or in this offense, tight ends are primarily used as blockers. Uh, he enjoys blocking and he's pretty solid at it so the pff grade doesn't really reflect that um but he is still pretty solid as a pass catcher too uh he he has some ability when he's got the ball in his hands and he's fairly athletic as well uh but not again not a ton to say here tight end it feels like say for like charlie kolar we never have a whole lot to say about the tight ends Um, i'm so glad that he's not in the big 12 anymore (laughs) that would be an absolute nightmare this year but moving on to the offensive line um they're one of the only units i'd say that stands out as pretty solid across the board i'd say receivers are solidly athletic across the board that doesn't mean that i think that they're incredible receivers 
Uh, it's more just that they're really good athletes that have taken advantage of bad competition, yeah. um, which I suppose you could make the same argument about bad competition with any group on this team. But uh, the offensive line, though, they're pretty solid, though. Uh, at left tackle, they've got Joey Claybrook, uh, number 79. He's got a 78.7 PFF grade, 76.9 pass grade, pass block grade, I should say, and then 75.5 run blocking grade. Uh, he's very consistent. Um, he doesn't miss his assignments, uh, plays pretty well. Um, he stands straight up at times, but he is fairly good in pass protection. That's a lot of, like Ace was saying earlier, Michael Pratt is really good over the middle of the field, that intermediate stuff. And the reason that they're so good at it is because the offensive line is able to hold out and give time for some longer developing routes to develop. So, uh, that, that's at least part of it when it is an RPO. Um, then, um, at left guard, they've got transfer Prince Pines, number 76, uh, 72.1 PFF grade, but a very high 86.9 pass block grade and then a lower 69.3 run blocking grade. Um, he is a bully at left guard. Um, he bodies people and doesn't really drive, uh, which can be an issue at times. Um, so he, a lot of blocking with his body, but doesn't release his arms as much as he should. Uh, and then in pass pro, um, not really the same issue though. Um, he, he's a very good pass blocker. Uh, again, we've been harping on this a lot. The teams they played, they sucked. Um, so there's there's no way around it. They were awful. Yeah. Just taking it with a grain of salt, I suppose. Um, but yeah, Prince Pines is really good. Uh, and he is, uh, somebody that needs to. Uh, to be considered. Um, then moving on, uh, the center is sincere Hainsworth, number 52. His PFF grades, I'm not going to say all of them, they're all in like the 71 to 72 range. He is one of the centers of all time. He's not noticeable, which is a good thing for centers to be. That is true. Um, centers, I feel like, are one of the spots in the line that get called out the most, it feels like. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, they don't really get noticed when uh, they're doing a good job. Like this year, some of the snaps have been off with Gilly. And, uh, you know, people people notice that because, uh, well, it's, it's quite noticeable. But, yeah, Sincere Hainsworth, he is a, uh, a pretty solid block. I mean, all around, he's fine is basically what we're trying to get at. He's yeah. not a world beater or anything, but he's pretty good. Um, right guard, they've got Kane and Ray, number 54, a 73.4 grade, uh, overall 70, or excuse me, 85.8 pass block and then 80.6 and run block. Um, Ace and I were unable to determine why his overall grade is as low as it is when his individual blocking grades are as high as they are. So we're just going to assume that he's good because he is. And, uh, when he's pulling, uh, he is going to try and absolutely ruin your day um and when he's doing that he still is able to do a pretty solid job of locking on um he is all around a a good blocker uh he pulls really well and he he does do a really good job getting uh, his arms on people he's very technically sound in that regard so there's a lot to like there kane and ray uh then Right tackle, they have uh, Rashad Green, number 69, uh, 68.3 PFF grade uh, overall, 82.6 pass block, and then a 59.8 run block. 
uh, kind of the opposite of what you'd expect for right a right tackle. tackle. Yeah. Kind of kind of strange, but again, small sample size. Um, you could put him out on an island pass protection. Uh, go figure with that really nice grade. Um, he's a really good lateral mover. Um, doesn't give up the edge. Uh, he'll run you out of the play uh, if you try to get around him, uh, which you can see a few times in like some extended uh, plays that take a while to develop. Uh, he, he is really good at protecting the edge. Um, he, uh, he'll miss the slot pressure if they send it at him. Uh, and then like his BFF grade suggests, he's just not a great run blocker. It, it, it's just not his jam, but you know what? We all have things we like and dislike Rashad green. He likes pass blocking. He doesn't love run blocking and that's pretty obvious. So, but yeah, all around this unit is pretty good. I think there's a fair argument for it being the best unit top to bottom on the entire team. And uh, I, I I think that they're pretty good from, from what I've seen, they have been a higher level unit than most would expect for a G five. I would say. Yeah. They've been consistently pretty good, but again, they haven't faced a test and I don't think they will face a test for the rest of the year. Like K state's defensive line, but Speaking of defensive line, we can move on to the Tulane Green Wave defensively, starting off with their defensive line. In terms of defensive ends, it is led by number 48, Keith Cooper Jr., and number three, Angelo Anderson, with number six, Darius Hodges, playing as the hybrid stand-up guy. Then defensive tackles, number 94, Eric Hicks, and number zero, Patrick Jenkins. We'll do defensive tackles first, and I'll take them. You can take defensive ends. The first things first is talking about Eric Hicks, number 94. He comes in with a 60.6 PFF grade, a 71.2 run defense grade, and a 56.7 running grade. First thing he's going to do is he's always going to try and work through you. Every single rep, he's not going to try and play his assignment. He's going to try and run through you. And that can work at times for run defense. Other times it will get you exposed. But when pass rushing, whenever he tries to work through you and not attack any particular gap or shoulder, his move is a bull rush, and it's not a very good bull rush. But despite that, he's probably the best part of their defensive line, mostly because he is a solid run defender who, weirdly enough, is capable of playing defensive tackle like a linebacker in that he's able to work through different gaps and sift to snuff out a running play which is so strange as a skill set to have as a defensive tackle. But that's either here or there. He's probably the best piece on the defensive line. And then Patrick Jenkins, number zero, he has a 58.3 PFF grade, 55.1 run defense, 64.7 pass rush. He has a degree of position versatility. He can line up anywhere from like a two-eye technique to a five technique. That said, he's really, really, really bad on his first step because he doesn't explode forward as much as you would want. He just kind of pops straight up. It's almost like he's trying to constantly go for like a rip move without making any contact first, which is probably why his rushing grade is better than his run defense grade, but it's neither are good. (laughs) And then number 91, Tylo Phillips gets some snaps as well. He's the definition of a run stopper. He comes in on obvious rushing situation. I mean, running situations, so he can fill up space. But you have defensive ends. Yeah, 
Uh, we'll start with uh, uh, number six, Darius Hodges. Uh, he plays a lot as the uh, the hybrid guy. Um, he's got a 73.1 PFF grade, 70.4 run defense grade, 73.2 rushing. Uh, he is not very good against the run. Uh, and that's about as much as you can say uh, in that regard. Um because he is that uh that hybrid guy. Um he just isn't a good run defender. There's not a whole lot else to say about it, honestly. Uh that he uh he just is is not good. Um he is pretty solid though as a pass rusher. Um he's pretty good as a speed guy. Um and he's um he tries to get creative and how he attacks the uh the outside shoulder um that is um but yeah run defense um the defensive end group as a whole really struggles with the uh the run force i'd say and moving on to angelo anderson number three uh, 56.8 pff grade 55.3 run defense 60.3 rush getting absolutely rolled by the UMass O-line in the running game. And he will overrun the play when he's not blocked. Um, Yeah, as a whole, I'd say defensive end room total. They really struggle with the run game. Um, I, f- I found a lot of times a pulling offensive lineman would just absolutely eviscerate them because um, they would just never see it coming until it was way too late and just one guy would just completely delete them from the play and that would, uh, that would end things for them. Uh, so there's a, there's a path to victory, uh, with these guys and their pass rushing is it, it, it's, it exists. I suppose they, they certainly in theory can rush the passer in theory, in theory, and in the same theory that you and I can rush the passer, I should say we get there eventually. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of similar. This is not a threatening unit, uh, especially compared to our offensive line. Uh, should not cause a lot of problems, especially uh, in like maybe some outside runs. Uh, they shouldn't cause too much issue there, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully not. Next up is linebackers headed by the Will linebacker, Dorian Williams, number two, and then the middle linebacker, Nick Anderson, who is number one. So number one and two make up your linebacking room. Uh, both have big problems with gap discipline in the running game in that they'll run themselves way too far forward and then just leave every single cutback lane known to man open. So they're they're prone to giving up big plays in the running game, especially when they're not playing gap sound. There is one person in particular who you already know the name of that is going to use and abuse this fact. <laughs> but first up is Dorian Williams. He has 10 total tackles on the air with one interception, a 70.2 PFF grade, 62.1 run defense, 74.3 tackling, 74.8 in coverage. He's definitely the more athletic of the two linebackers, which I'm not sure is saying much, but he's used as the primary blitzer, though he's not particularly good at hiding when he's blitzing. He's one of those guys that you can kind of catch lurching forward. He will literally lean his entire body forward, stand on his tippy toes when he's about to blitz, like right before he does it. It's really obvious and also kind of funny. And he's also not particularly great at working through his gap when he's on the blitz. He can get stonewalled pretty easily. 
His biggest saving grace is his ability to make the open field tackle. So swing screens, he's probably going to be there. Outside runs, he's probably going to be there. And he's going to make the tackle eventually. But in terms of the middle linebacker, that's Nick Anderson. And he has five tackles on the year. And yeah, his PFF grades are not very good. 55.7 total grade, 55.9 run defense, 49.2 tackling, 54 coverage. Very least, the nicest thing that you could say about him is he always has his eyes on the play. But he's by no means a plus athlete, and this limits him in just about every part of his game. He's not good in coverage. He's not very good in space. He's your 1990s middle linebacker. He exists to stop the run. But the problem is he creates a lot of bad angles for himself in the running game that his lack of athleticism can't really make up for. So the linebacking room is not a particularly big worry. And this theme kind of continues with the defensive backs, but Connor has you for at least the corners there. Yeah. Um, at corner, um, we have uh, number 28, Jaden Kennedy, uh, and then an old friend alert with uh, number seven, Lance Robinson, a former K-State Wildcat who transferred out in 2020, I think. And uh, your guess is as good as mine, honestly. But yeah. Um, Jaden Kennedy, he's got two tackles on the year, 67.6 per, or 67.6 PFF grade, uh, 49 tackle grade, 66.2 coverage grade. He is the epitome of mediocre and run support. Um, he is a physical corner man coverage and he wants to get his hands on you. Um, and if you're within five yards of the line of scrimmage, you're going to get bumped. And then moving to Lance Robinson, he's got two tackles, 67.5 uh, PFF grade, 66 coverage, almost identical ratings uh, to Jaden Kennedy and identical stance as well. Yeah. Uh, and I'd imagine he's got at least two or three uh, um, taunts for an overthrown ball that he had nothing to do with so far as well, because that's kind of the one pressing memory of him. This was is a he, trait. he talked a lot of smack uh, for plays where he didn't actually do anything. Um, but yeah, the corners, um, again, it's, it's tough to get an accurate read on how good they truly are just because again, the, the competition, it, it, it's not, it's not there, uh, with, uh, UMass and, uh, Alcorn state, those, those teams are just not good, uh, on any stretch of the imagination. So it's, it's tough to get a perfectly accurate read um, on these guys, but they're they're solid athletes, um, and they'll they'll play decently assignment sound uh, from what we can tell. Their their average group of five corners um, is probably a, a decent way to think of them. There's some talent in the safety room, though. Um, if you want to cover that, is yeah, you can cover the Nickelback first, though. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, Larry Brooks. Um, at strong safety, making Clark is the nickel. Do you want me to take making Clark instead of? Uh, sorry, I thought you said strong safety. You're then, good. <laughs> yeah, making Clark. Um, he is somebody that um actually has a phenomenal uh PFF grade on the year. Uh, he's got seven tackles, one fumble, one pick, and two pass deflections. Uh, so far this year, um, his one pick, I believe, was the UMass game, and it was pretty much a user lurk and like a flat cover. Yeah. So 
it, it was just a telegraph throw by the UMass QB. I, I could have made the pick, honestly. That's not to discredit making Clark. I'm just thinking about how awful the throw it was. Yeah. Uh, more, more so decision, I guess. He's got 90 points UPFF grade, 92.1 coverage grade, uh, 59 tackle grade. Um, he is considered their tight end eraser. Um, he's pretty solid in all types of coverage, and he diagnoses plays faster than anybody else on the defense for the most part. Um, he is a solid nickelback, uh, and he you, you, you have to respect him. Uh, he's more of a force than either of the other two guys, at least in terms of being a, uh, a more active defensive back than those other two guys. But I mean, and uh, that's not to fully discredit those other two, but making Clark, he is, he is fairly impressive. Um, again, and not to the point where I'm overly worried, I should say, but he's, uh, he's solid. Yeah. It's not every day that your nickelback is your best player. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like, um, AJ Parker in 2020, uh, yeah. after he moved from outside to nickel like halfway through the year because we had no one else to do it, and then he ended up going to the NFL because of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the safety room is number 31, Larry Brooks, and number 23, Lummy Young, the fourth. That's another candidate for the all name team. But starting off with Larry Brooks at strong safety, he has eight tackles on the year. A 79.5 PFF grade, 82.3 run defense, 88.8 tackling grade, and a 74.6 coverage grade. And as you'd probably be able to guess, he's a great tackler. And that's really whether it's open field, whether it's true one-on-ones, or whether he's buzzing down to be a more of a linebacker. No matter where he's at, he's an excellent tackler. He gets hands on you, he's bringing you down. And that's partially because he's really good at getting people squared up to where he doesn't have to run from behind or run at a bad angle. He creates really good angles for himself. The one weakness in his game is that motion really does mess with him. And not in the way that you would think in that, you know, you create motion to maybe slow down passing reads. No, no, no. It messes up with him in the run defense, which is his main calling card. But he's still a pretty good strong safety. And then Lummy Young, the fourth at free safety, has two tackles on the year. 71.6 PFF grade, 76.7 in run defense, 83.9 tackling, but a 64.3 coverage grade. He's in this defense, they're playing a lot of cover three and a lot of cover one. He's not good at playing center fielder, and there's no way around that. He just doesn't get the depth that you need to, and he doesn't have the field awareness to recognize, hey, there's only one deep throw. There's only one deep route on this play. I should probably go provide help for that one deep route. He doesn't doesn't really have that awareness. So if there is a true one-on-one opportunity deep, he's probably the reason why it wasn't two versus one. That being said, he's a fine over-the-middle defender if he's playing a middle hook. But yeah, that pretty much wraps up the certain positional grades. So now we can go into the stories to watch going into this game. So first one, I will say it isn't on the outline. It's can K-State avoid what is seemingly a trap game? Because Tulane is a team that, if nothing else, plays with a lot of heart. And you can see that in how they played Oklahoma last year. 
this is a team that isn't going to lay down and die for anybody. So can K-State avoid giving them a lot of momentum? Um, I lean towards yes. Um, I, I think it's unlike Chris Kleiman to allow uh, the roster to overlook uh, an opponent like Tulane. Because uh, I, I do think that he's aware that Tulane is a team that's probably feeling really confident right now uh, after getting two blowout victories. Um, granted, they got in competition, but they're not thinking about that when they're on the field. They're thinking about you know how they're winning 52-0 and stuff like that and yeah. how they want Bama and how nobody can beat them. So um, I don't think there's any way that Kleiman is going to let the team uh, overlook Tulane. Uh, I think it's probably going to be a big week of prep. Uh, where they also are trying not to look forward to Oklahoma, which I think makes it more of a trap game than anything. Yeah. But I, I, I'll, I'll trust in climbing to uh, um, get the team ready and uh, avoid uh, dropping a game to a team like Tulane. Yeah, I agree because Kleiman actually mentioned in his press conference today, I believe, among the fact that he's not leaving for Nebraska, which was really good to hear, mostly because of Gene Taylor. <laughs> yeah, but. He said that they can't afford to overlook anybody. They can't afford to look ahead to the Oklahoma game, which, you know, obviously, what else is he going to say? But it's really good to hear it nonetheless. Yeah. Um, You want to take this one? I was going to. I forgot we alternate. It is okay. Uh, (laughs) um, Against a weak defensive line, can K-State's offensive line give up fewer than four tackles for loss? If we do give up more, that's cause for concern. Big um, concern. I'll, are we qualifying this with non-garbage time tackles Not, for loss? Yeah, non-garbage time tackles for loss. Then, yeah. Um, probably going to be fine in that regard, unless we have like three of them that are like half a yard loss, and it's just tough luck. Yeah. But I, I, I think that we can avoid... Uh, a lot of havoc plays, especially against the front, um, is going to take some well-timed blitzing uh, and stunting to uh, um, get many TFLs. I think either that or Adrian just holding on to the ball for too long. Uh, I'm not super worried about uh, our offensive line versus their defensive line. Yeah. Next question is in a matchup where they're going to be getting a lot of one-on-ones, can the receivers finally put it all together and make an impact on this game? I have a, um, a feeling in my gut. Uh, the receivers are about to have like the most average game of all time. And to us, it's going to feel like they have an incredible game because we've been waiting for a little bit now uh, this year because they they left last year on a high note. They performed pretty well most of the way down the stretch, and it's been the opposite uh, this year. They it, it, it's difficult for them to have been much worse, um, and they've been as possible for sure. They've made some solid plays, but um, complete lack of consistency. Um, so I'm hopeful. I think that they'll be okay, probably this this week. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, this week, uh, does Adrian finally have a situation where you can throw it around a little bit? This defense is quite literally, if you can out athlete their defensive backs, which I hope to God we can, 
this is a week where you can bomb it downfield pretty easily because of how Lummy Young plays <clears throat> plays the middle of the field. I Yes, this is finally a game where, barring any weather conditions from the green wave or you know the fact that I think there's a slight chance for rain on Saturday, which, please not again, don't do this again. <laughs> I Yeah, I really don't want to have to deal with another rain game. Like I know that we just said like yesterday, that you know we we take a rain game over a hot day which right now is what we're facing but i really just don't want to get my shoes wet again and i i just want them to throw the ball i want them to be able to throw the ball yeah i I, i'm not asking for much i i i just want them to be yeah like you said just i just want to see them throw the ball granted right now the chance of rain seems to be friday at time of recording which is tuesday um, it's a 40% chance on Friday, uh, during the day, uh, Saturday right now, uh, chances are below 20%, yeah. uh, knock on wood for that, I suppose, but I, I'm hopeful, but I, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, I guess. Yeah. Next question is, can K-State's defense keep rolling? I think so. Um, assuming the defensive line, uh, has a above average day at worst, which I, this is like the least that we should accept from them this week. I think even though Tulane does have a pretty solid offensive line, uh, we should still win that battle fairly easily. I think the defense continues to roll, um, unless their receivers just all have banner days, um, and the middle field. Uh, we struggle to cover, which, which we did at times last year, really struggle to cover middle field. But um, hopeful. Um, the defense has given us no reason to think they aren't going to be really good. I'll put it like that, but uh, we shall see. Yeah, I agree. I, I think this will be another, this would be another one where I would be, I'm not going to say disappointed, but yeah, we really if we're if we've gone this far without giving up a non-garbage time touchdown, I'd say we probably do it again this week. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think that's a fair rationale. Um for that, you know, Tulane's offense isn't awful, but they don't have that explosive play and that's kind of like the one thing that I think could really beat us right now. Uh is a lot of explosive plays, so um their running game doesn't scare me. Um, the intermediate passing game could do something, uh, but they're going to have to get that rolling. And I don't think they're going to have as much time in the pocket as they had uh, against uh, Alcorn and uh, UMass. So I'm skeptical. Yeah. But yeah. Um, does Deuce break 150 yards rushing? Because he came very, very close against Missouri at 145. So uh, will he break 150? He should, especially against this. This might be a game where we don't see the ball thrown more than like, you know, fifth, like more than 10 times after the first quarter. That being said, I would really like it if we threw the ball around a lot in the first quarter. So I actually get a chance to see what the passing game looks like. But, 
Yeah, this should be a game where Deuce Vaughn especially just absolutely donkey rolls the entire defense. Yeah, I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm hopeful as well. Um, there's no reason Deuce shouldn't have a field day. The only way he doesn't break 150 is if he gets like four touchdowns early and we pull him at halftime. <laughs> yeah. So and like maybe he'll he'll still get like 120, 130 maybe. But um, I don't know. I'd like to see some more all-purpose yards as well from Deuce. We've not been using him a ton in the passing game yet. We did have that wheel route that was called back due to a uh, um, alleged offensive pass interference. No, no, no. I, I look, I look back at it. it. Yeah, it was definitely offensive pass interference. That doesn't fit my narrative, so I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. Uh, right. The rest were out to get <laughs> us in that game because they didn't want Deuce to have more all-purpose yards. Why so, don't they want Deuce for the Heisman? <laughs> they're being paid off by somebody to prevent Deuce's Heisman campaign. <laughs> Then the final question, can K-State's defensive line dominate a solid group against Tulane? I'm going to stop short of saying dominate, but I'm going to say that they clearly are the superior unit. Um, I, I think that they have a good day. I think they have a similar day to Mizzou. Uh, which granted the, the Mizzou game, a lot of those tackles for losses. I mean, it was guys like Josh Hayes coming up or Julius Brents um, and being really helpful in run support. So I, I will stop a little short be, because I do respect Tulane's offensive line uh, to a, a certain degree. Um, so I, I won't say dominate, but I do think that K-State's defensive line wins the uh, position group battle. Awesome. Now we can talk about projective offensive and defensive MVPs. Starting off with the offensive side of the ball. Say it with me now. Three, two, one. Deuce Vaughn. Deuce Vaughn. Yeah. It, I think last week I said I was going to keep picking Adrian until he actually won it. But it's also just silly to not pick Deuce at this rate because he's been so great. Which, of course, we say that and I say that. And the week... And this week, you know, he'll get like 70 yards and a touchdown. I don't know, like Jordan Shippers is going to have like 150 yards or something, but <laughs> Adrian's going to throw for like 800 yards in a game or something. We Colin turn Klein, into an air raid team. Yeah, Colin Klein's going to break out the Robo QB as Adrian Martinez grows like like five inches taller and like can throw 100 yards like flat foot. <laughs> yeah, I... To make this slightly more interesting, who's the non-Deuce Vaughn pick for you? Um, Gosh, that's a good question. Because other than Deuce, we spread it around so much like we did in the bowl game. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Phillip Brooks, I think. Uh, I, th- I think he's an intriguing pick as maybe an over-the-middle type of guy. Um, Malik I, I, I'm not sure how he'll perform in this game. I'm just not going to hold my breath on the league breaking out at this point, uh, yeah. which is a real shame because, I mean, we've been holding our breath for like five years on that. I'm just going to be pleasantly surprised if it happens at this point. Um, I'll say Philip. I think that he'll have a solid day. Maybe Adrian as well, but we'll see. Yep. My pick's actually going to be Malik Knowles for it just because of it kind of takes what their offense does and having just like a good playmaker. I think that he probably gets a couple jet sweep carries this time, especially because 
you know, their strong safety does not play well against motion in the running game. And I think he's a better athlete than both of their corners. So I think it'll be a good game for Malik. Defensively, my MVP pick is going to be Daniel Green, just because I think he's probably going to be the jack of all trades as he normally is. And this is going to be especially useful in an offense that really loves short and intermediate routes. I think Deuce Green probably leads the team in tackles unless Austin Moore does it again, in which case go off Austin Moore for being like the best defensive player. <laughs> Honestly, good for him. No, I, I agree. Um, and Deuce Green's a great pick. I mean, defense is the total opposite of offense when we're picking MVPs where there's, you could say five or six different guys and I wouldn't bat an eye. Uh, yeah. Whereas offense, it's really, you're saying Deuce or betting on Adrian to have a great week. Um, but defensively, I say Kobe Savage. Um, like we mentioned earlier, the deep ball is really not there for Michael Pratt. Uh, so maybe Kobe Savage is able to pick off a few. Um, maybe Sincere Mason uh, could do it too and get well, like five trick, picks in this game some... or something. Yeah, uh, he gets three, three picks in a row each week. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, that, that, that could work too. I'm saying Kobe because uh, I love him and run support. He's been electric so far. Uh, I I love watching him. He's quickly becoming a fan favorite. So I'm rolling with Kobe. All right. Now the big one. What is your score projection for this game? I'm saying 45-7. I I, I don't think this is going to be too big of a struggle uh, for K-State. Maybe I'm being overconfident, but we just handled Mizzou pretty well. Um, even through the elements and uh, the passing game still struggled, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to pass judgment on a day where it was very rainy and slippery for a lot of the day. Um, so Tulane, hopefully we'll get a better display, but I, I think that we're gonna have a pretty successful day. So 45, seven for me. Yeah. I'm going to go with 42 to nine. Cause I, I don't think that they're going to score a touchdown outside of garbage time. And I think that this is a defense that is very susceptible to exactly what our offense wants to do. So I'm going to project 42 to nine, a, and at very least a very comfortable victory mm-hmm. for the cats, which, you know, the moment that we say that moment, we started getting comfortable last year was the exact moment we started getting donkey rolled. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but you know, it'll be in front of what's apparently going to be close to a sellout crowd, which kind of surprises me. Yeah. It gets too um, lane. Yeah, that that is shocking because everybody seemed to be saying that this game was tracking towards not great attendance numbers, Um, but it's only scattered singles and standing room at this point. I guess people are taking notice of the team's performance. And then also this isn't on the outline, but we need to talk about it uh, is the alternate helmets that are going to be worn. Man, it's a shame that they had to to forge those helmets themselves. You know, they, they all went to the the plastic mines and said, we must dig out these helmets ourselves because that's obviously going to take away from game prep and we're going to, it's going to be a distraction. It really is too bad. Um, I am joking. I am joking. I am joking. No, he's not joking. The players, (laughs) they, they, uh, they had to go and uh, create their own stickers and they weren't allowed to practice or even watch film until they had handcrafted a helmet with a sticker on it because this is obviously taking away from valuable game prep time you know the players 
uh, crafting these helmets for themselves. And it, it, it's a real shame, honestly. Um, it, I, I'm, I'm very disappointed. And now we're probably going to lose just because of the helmet that we're wearing. Someone's uh, going to send us that clip if we do lose. Well, you know what? It's because we were clairvoyant. Yeah. But if we win, it was ironic. So yeah. it's a win-win. In all seriousness, the helmets look sick. I love them. Uh, I was in a, a class when they were revealed, so I, I had a delayed uh, reaction to it. But I was sitting there in the class uh, thinking uh, what was going to happen with them. Uh, and I, I I was surprised that uh, the decal, it makes sense, but I was a little surprised that they didn't put the decal on the other side. I get it's because you can't like put the sticker on both sides because it, it would be asymmetrical and look weird. Yeah. But I thought maybe they'd get an inverted sticker and put it on the other side so that way it faces the same direction like fix the text or something but they didn't do that i i like their idea a little better honestly uh because i it's been a very long time i'd imagine since we've had numbers on a helmet so i i like that look uh the color is nice it's a really deep royal purple i'm glad that we're kind of getting back to that shade of purple because for a while we had a lot brighter purple which i is fine, but I didn't love it. I I much prefer the darker shade uh, for K State, and I like that we're getting back to having alternate uniforms, uh, and at least in some fashion with the uh, white uh, walking Willie helmet, and then also the white pants as well. Uh, it's a, it's a nice touch. It's nothing crazy. It's not like this grand reinvention of the wheel for K State uniforms, but it's something different because it's. A de- it's a decal that I don't think has ever been used on a helmet. And then it's also uh, including the numbers on there as well with the white pants, white helmet. No stripe in the middle either, which was surprising. Yeah. yeah, I really like the way it looks. And they actually kind of, if in a subtle way, they were leading up to it because the EMOF flag that they had have that exact same design on it. Yeah, they, they were alluding to it for a couple of weeks uh, in hindsight. And they didn't build it up a ton in the time leading up to it. Uh, they, they had the video the day before teasing it. And then they just put it out the next day because I figured they, they probably figured that it was going to leak out uh, sooner rather than later, which is yeah. fair. I mean, it's a lot of people to keep that secret. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm happy. I'm also surprised it was not Fort Riley themed because it's going to yeah. be Fort Riley Day. They have a big red yeah. one on the back. They do. They they do have that. I figured, but I think everybody thought it was going to be a camo helmet because of the Fort Riley Association. Um, But I, I, I also think that doing this this early might indicate that maybe we'll see some other alternates, uh, alternate helmets this year. Um, It's possible because. I, I, I do not have confirmed Connor Balthazar. I, I do not have inside information. I am just speculating that we're we're getting this alternate helmet week three, so maybe we'll be seeing others down the stretch. I am hoping so much for uh, a road game where we go all white because uh, that look at the uh, bowl game in 2019 was the best part of that game. So, well, th- there's not a lot of competition. That is true. Um, Brooks had a nice punt return uh, touchdown at first of his career. Um, he also had a dropped touchdown reception uh, in the first quarter, too, that would have won us that game. But it was like four years ago. I'm going to let it go. Yeah. 
But yeah, that pretty much wraps up this scouting report in this episode of the Aggieville Alleycast podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to follow the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Aggieville ACATS. That's capital A, capital A, and capital C in CATS. If you want to email us, we're at AggievilleAlleycats at gmail.com. If you go follow us on a more personal note, I am at ACEdwards00. I am at Connor Balthasor, capital C, capital B. And if you want to support the show financially, please be sure to check out the official Aggieville Alleycats merch store, where you can find such designs as Play Sandstorm Cowards, Neon Alleycats, and the staff-approved Doom Tang Clan. But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alleycats podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Alleycats.